Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. Josh is now living in England in the era of Charles III. What's it like being in a new period? Are you going to later write your book about what life was like in the era of Elizabeth II? Not anytime soon. <laughs> I'm still holding out for an English Republic one day. Yeah, well, good luck with that. I mean, I, somebody on one of your Facebook posts put up a potential A-level question for 70 years in the future, like, Describe the media response to the death of Elizabeth II. It's funny, too, because people came up to me where I work. I work in a library. People came up to me, Americans, right? And are like, wow, this is really a historic moment. And I'm, I'm thinking, why? Why for you? Like, what do you care? The British monarchy is irrelevant in a lot of respects. It's wholly irrelevant to us. I mean, that was what 1776 to 82 was all about. We're stealing North America, and you have to stay out of it with your Euro, your old Europe way of doing things. But why do you think that the monarchy persists in holding such a fascination in the UK? And I mean, it seems to, at least from the remove of North America. I mean, old school monarchism, as you might call it, is completely dead, I think. You know, people who actually believe in the hereditary principle are very, very few at this point. And people who believe that the monarch is chosen by God to govern us, I doubt there's anyone who believes that, really. Maybe a few Christians believe that. Jacob Rees-Mogg? He may wish that to be the case at some level, but even for him it's deeply complicated because he's a Catholic, and the British monarchy is an inherently sectarian Protestant institution, so it's not like he could become Prime Minister in a sense because he's a Catholic. It would be, he could, but it would be extremely controversial. He certainly couldn't marry into the family, or again, he probably could, but it'd be extremely controversial. It would be a first. I think people hold on to it for a number of reasons, mainly... They like the pomp and pageantry, and they like what they think is tradition, even though it was mostly invented five minutes ago, to the extent that even things used from film sets are borrowed and used in royal ceremony. And many people just kind of believe that it's a good thing to have around because it connects us to our past, and also, isn't it kind of something that we should have, and isn't it something we should believe in? And maybe someone somewhere does believe in it, so let's hang on to it. And the tourism is probably a good thing. The first time my family visited the British Isles was in 1982, I think. The funny thing, too, is we're Irish, and American-Irish republicanism is a weird thing about which we could spend a whole other session talking about, because it's just very odd. But nonetheless, you know, my parents were a little bit fascinated with the British monarchy, and I think a lot of Americans are. It's very odd, because our whole national ethos was like, you know, no more kings. Pache, what Donald Trump must think about how the country is actually organized, since he clearly thinks that when you become president or when he became president, that the state and his possessions became one thing. But it's just kind of fascinating, too, that the British monarchy hasn't for 100 years, more, 150 years, really had any significant governmental role. But also there's the House of Lords. And what is the reason for that? In the old way of thinking, it was about limiting the power of the unwashed masses but now, anytime the House of Lords really gets sticky, they just say, well, you guys need to come through and approve whatever it is, because otherwise we'll just make a whole bunch more peers, and that'll be it. I'm looking at this from the perspective of American government, which has a lot of stuff in it where you look at it and you're like, why in the hell is that there? Like the Electoral College. It's only there because they haven't gotten rid of it. It doesn't really fulfill any role. The monarchy and the House of Lords is like that on steroids. It's absolutely a bizarre thing for a modern mass democracy, modern industrialized country to actually have as a sort of organizing principle of its government. Uh, absolutely. In the case of the House of Lords, it's a bit similar to the Electoral College in that it just kind of hangs around because people 
either don't understand it fully or they don't have a understanding of the alternatives or they disagree on the alternatives and how to approach it. So I think there's probably a lot less support for the House of Lords as an institution, but it persists because we disagree about how to get rid of it. That's an interesting point. Most people or a lot of people, the non-insane people in the United States, which is not as large a proportion as you would hope, but whatever, look at the Electoral College and think, well, this is a terrible idea. The Republicans have only won the popular vote for the presidency like once in the last five times, if I'm not mistaken. But the reason that the Republicans have managed to have presidents recently, like Donald Trump, is a perfect example, lost the popular vote both times, but the first time he won the Electoral College, and he could theoretically do it again. I mean, the, Donald Trump is closer to being president than a lot of people would think, even given the fact that he's about to be indicted in about four different jurisdictions because of the peculiarities of the structure of the American polity. The British thing seems to have a kind of emotional content, too. People, they have these arguments about... Meghan Markle, who gives a shit? People act as if, you know, okay, so now Charles, who's a weirdo, but not as weird as his brother, right? For which the bar is very low. But now he's king and some change is going to happen. Even in The Guardian, which tends to have like a mostly reasonable, if unremittingly liberal perspective, still has articles in it about, well, what's the difference going to be now that Charles is king? I mean, it really beggars belief. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the media has gone completely into overdrive on this, but that was always going to be the case. I'm thankful that it isn't completely hysterical in the way it was when Diana died, because that was next level. People who remember it more vividly than I say it was a bit like living in a one-party state for a week. Every channel was the same. There was kind of obligatory, well, not obligatory mourning, but there's a lot of pressure to put on a show of mourning. There was forms of censorship going on in the media and towards comedians and so on. People were facing threats if they spoke out as Republicans. I think one person was assaulted for picking up a teddy at the memorial, for example. The guy who did it said he did it for Britain. So it could be a lot weirder right now than it is, thankfully. While we're on the topic of purported changes in the world, this is, of course, September the 11th, the 21st anniversary of the attack staged by Al-Qaeda. 9-11 was a horrific tragedy, but people in the United States made it into something that it wasn't. And if you said anything sort of critical about the United States, the immediate response from people was, well, you're justifying, you know, you're offering some sort of justification, which, of course, one is not. Like, there's absolutely no possible justification for the 9-11 attacks. They were brutal criminal. And from the perspective of what Al-Qaeda was notionally trying to accomplish, resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of more people in the Middle East than probably would have died had it not happened for the reason that the Bush administration was then like, you bastards, we're going to get you. Now let's attack Iraq. It seemed like a surprise to people when that happened, which I thought was very strange too. When they talk about like, well, we've got to root Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan. You could look at that and say, well, I mean, Al-Qaeda is terrible and Probably doing that might not be a terrible idea, but it's inseparable from this momentum to attacking Iraq, which is what the Bush administration wanted to do in any case. I remember arguing with people, just being like, the Afghanistan thing is clearly a sideshow and a sort of precursor to attacking Iraq. And they were like, no, 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 no. And then, of course, it happened. And everybody seemed to forget that they had refused to acknowledge that that was the case. But also, and I think that this is the point that's in a sense homologous with the current moment, is that you've met so many people in the United States, in Europe, all over the place who were like, well, 
everything's different now. Like everything has changed now. What What is different now? I mean, am I going to be able to understand IKEA assembly instructions? Clearly, you don't mean everything is different. Some things are different, but the, the insistence that everything is different is a kind of refusal to acknowledge the complexity of the situation. In a way, I think also there's a big transition going on in the UK because of the death of the Queen is part of an unwillingness to acknowledge the complexities of what's going on in the UK politically right now. I mean, the, the change that's important is not the change in the British monarchy. The change that's important is the change in the prime ministership. And that, I think, will have a lot more profound effects on what goes on in the UK and in Europe than anything that Charles III is likely to do in his lifetime. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think the, the significance that it has is just kind of bracketing periods of history, because that's how a lot of people in the UK understand our history, is basically periods of rule by monarch. So we've had this lengthy period, we might call it the second Elizabethan age or something, for 70 years. And it's a period of great deal of change and basically national decline, right? And now we're in a new period. But effectively, there's not that much difference. There's going to be a change of style and a different person. And really, the political content is where the significant differences are. Some people have also <laughs> made the comparison with 9-11. Some very foolish British journalists have made this comparison. It's, it's pretty outrageous, I think. But the difference with 9-11, because we're not making that analogy, obviously, because it's stupid, the difference is, is that 9-11 was catalytic for a whole series of terrifying police measures and extrajudicial actions and wars that we're still living with. And it's funny how all of that has just become the norm, and we no longer talk about the war on terror anymore. Yeah, people were, in the wake of 9-11, I mean, things did change, that was certainly true, but the way they changed was people were falling over themselves to give up their human rights. The, when the Patriot Act passed, I remember thinking, Americans normally are kind of paranoid about the expansion of government power, the expansion of police power. I mean, even to this day, I've been giving lectures lately about the origins of the Constitution, and the big change in the U.S. Constitution of 1787 was that it massively expanded federal power and massively uh, reduced the power of the individual states. And that was the thing that people were really upset about and continue to be upset about it. When I give lectures about it, people want to talk about the sort of overreach of federal power. But in the wake of 9-11, they were all like, more surveillance is great. You know, I remember the morning 9-11 happened. I happened to be out at a market or whatever. Everything was closing down. I was in a sort of strip mall. And I was checking out with whatever it was I was buying. And the woman at the counter said, do you think there'll be war? I was like, well, there was war when you bent to bed last night, and there's war when you woke up this morning. You just weren't thinking about it. And so, yeah, there is going to be war, but it's going to be a continuation of the military and extra-military multi-spectrum conflicts that have continued to go on that you just didn't pay attention to because you had the, the luxury of not doing so. But I think, too, the death of the monarch comes at a, in a weird way a good time for Liz Truss. It addresses, in a way, the problem that Liz Truss has, which is that the protocol in Northern Ireland has now become a big issue again. For people who don't follow British politics and the history of British politics, most British politicians would love it if Ireland generally would just drop off the face of the earth. Historically, no good thing comes out of Ireland. Not for the British. Well, right. That's, that's right. And I'd say this as a person of Irish descent. 
But there was that plan that Harold Wilson had come up with to sever the connection between the UK and Northern Ireland. And this is after he had referred to the strikers in a strike among utility workers, I think, in Northern Ireland. And he referred to them mostly Protestant loyalists, so to speak. And he referred to them as spongers, which went over extremely badly. But he had, it turned out later, come up with this plan where he was going to sever the political connection between the UK and Northern Ireland. And once again, the protocol has become a thing. Liz Truss, correct me if I'm wrong, but Liz Truss, as a member of parliament, had been pushing a measure which would have caused the UK to spontaneously change the backstop. And the EU was not very happy about this idea. Yeah, the Tory position is basically to try and move the sea border on land, which is madness, because the UK border running through Ireland is notoriously difficult to regulate in any way, because it runs through towns, it runs through people's gardens. Logistically, it's just madness. It's going to be open season for smugglers. Maybe that's the end game here. Maybe there's a smuggler's lobby behind all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard to believe. If you looked at the history of what's going on in the border, especially South Armagh is a particularly interesting case here. They couldn't keep people from smuggling all kinds of weapons across the border, and they really had a very significant interest in doing so, and they just couldn't stop it. The hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic is a really terrible idea. Economically, Northern Ireland has been in an improving trajectory relative to what it had been in the preceding 25 or 30 years. Since Brexit, I think their trade with the Republic has gone up pretty significantly. So Northern Ireland has a very pronounced interest. I mean, they're still economically depressed vis-a-vis the rest of the UK, but, but it gets much worse for them if they don't have this easily accessible conduit between them and the EU, and particularly between them and the Republic. Yeah, it's not surprising, really. The impact of Brexit was always going to kind of push Northern Ireland closer to the Irish Republic. That's ironic for many reasons, because of course the Tories are supposed to be a unionist party, and they were and have been aligned with the DUP for a very long time, on and off. Certainly historically they've been aligned with the Loyalist cause, and yet they've kind of morphed into an English Nationalist Party, and they're pushing Northern Ireland in this direction, albeit while wishing the opposite. It's very strange to watch. It's a classic case of contradictions playing out. So one of the first things that happened when Liz Truss was anointed as Prime Minister was that she had a phone call with Joe Biden, the President of the United States, which is not surprising. The special relationship is a little bit in tatters right now, but the United States is still... Great Britain's number one ally, such as it is. But apparently in the course of the conversation, Biden specifically warned Liz Truss not to unilaterally alter the protocol. And I think that that's a kind of an interesting thing. Biden is Catholic. I think Biden's interest in this is the fear that degradation in the economic situation in Northern Ireland and the return of some sort of hard border might be the precursor to a return of the bad old days of the Troubles. And I think that's markedly unlikely, given the growth of political institutions in Northern Ireland that's happened since the Good Friday Agreement. But it's not inconceivable. I mean, there still is a relatively higher level of ambient violence in Northern Ireland than in other parts of the UK. There still is fairly significant intercommunal lack of understanding, let's just say, between the the so-called loyalists and the so-called nationalists. But there's more of a concern outside the UK than inside it that that's a possible outcome. But pretty clearly, 
another possible outcome is a freeze in the ongoing negotiations, trade negotiations between the EU and Great Britain. And that's a problem for Liz Truss because she, like other members of the Tory party, seems blissfully unaware that their negotiating position sucks. That whereas they need trade with the EU, for the EU, the UK is only the third largest trading partner after the United States and China. And Really, if you want to look at where trade growth is likely to happen and who gets hurt if the relationship between the UK and the EU becomes more fraught, it seems fairly clear to me, and perhaps you can clarify more from an internal perspective, that that the UK has a lot more to lose from a, a, a worsening of trade relations with the EU than the EU does. I think there's a kind of inverted reading going on among the people behind policy maneuvers on this, or they're just thinking about electoral strategy rather than economics. So there's two possibilities there. And maybe they're even mixed up together. But I think it's possible that people like Liz Truss look at the they can look at the fact that we're only what you, what you said, the third largest trading partner or whatever. And they'll read it as well, we're we're ahead of so many other countries. Yeah, that's <laughs> way to be glass half full. In a way, it seems like the change in the monarchy, there's been this sort of like, okay, we're going to have a sort of hiatus while this goes on. So they canceled all the matches, the English Premier League matches this weekend. There's a couple of strike actions that have been postponed, apparently, because this is going on. And also, a lot of people in and around the trade negotiations have said, well, maybe this can be a moment for a reset. Why that would be the case is anybody's guess, since the queen has absolutely she, she has about as little to do with the trade negotiations as she did with the english premier league to be 100 percent honest but maybe this is a moment where cooler heads will prevail if there are any left in the tory party about what sorts of outcomes are likely if they push this idiotic unilateral solution to the protocol issue yeah the idea of it being a reset it's I find it hard to believe. I, I think the Tories will push ahead with their agenda, but this is a what you might think of as a breather for them, because Liz Truss has just come to power amid a, a mounting energy crisis and major political problems, you know, internal problems in the party. They've got to clean up after Boris and all the rest. And we're facing more strike actions after this. They'll restart, I'm sure. So this is kind of a break for them, so they can kind of use this time to at least strategize and think of other policies that are going to go ahead with an intervention on the energy front to kind of freeze prices or cap them at £2,500. But I don't think there'll be a fundamental rethink of British policy towards Northern Ireland, just because I think these people are, are so pig-headed and ultimately their interests are to do exactly what they've been doing consistently for years. Yeah, I think the way that you have to look at it is more about maintaining a sort of class position or a position in the economy. So even if shit is kind of going south with the economy because of Brexit or because of worsening trade situation between the UK and the EU, there are still people who benefit from that. And there are people who benefit not only economically, but there are people who benefit politically by being able to say, well, you know, little Britain standing alone. I think you're clearly right. What's not on the cards is a reset more likely what's on the cards is a chance for Liz Truss and her people to try and get a little better purchase on the news cycle so that they can do whatever it is that they want to do, which I don't think has anything to do with a rationally defensible policy vis-a-vis -vis Northern Ireland or trade relations with the EU. If you want to talk about transitions these days from period to period, it's not so much anymore that there's some sort of profound 
political change going on resulting from the monarchy, because clearly there isn't. The outcome here is more about, once again, getting a little purchase on how the story is being disseminated. But I think pretty clearly the story remains roughly the same. Yeah, I think so. Uh, the era of Queen Elizabeth II was one of decline, as I said before, but Charles III, his reign will also be defined by decline. Just, just looking at the, the body politic and how things are playing out, the fantasy of levers of Brexit transforming and restoring vitality to British capitalism. It, it's just nonsense. It's just not going to happen. And we're looking at medium term to long term. We're looking at the breakup of the UK. So, yeah. Probably also fewer corgis in public life, which, you know, Sadly. yeah, I, I think that might be the most significant and profound change. But anyway, that's your lot for this broadcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks and Josh can give us an update from Britain in the era of Charles III. So that's all from us. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Bye.